but it's just airplanes, so it's not, it's it's, not really no this is This is the best seat in the house. It's, it's got a runway in the front yard. <laughs> so how's the weather in Wichita? Uh, cold, but not intolerably cold. It's, it's, it's going to get in the high 40s today. Uh, three, four days ago, it was in the 20s, and we had snow and freezing rain for about 18 hours, but the accumulation didn't amount to even an inch. Uh, hmm. But it's amazing how little ice it takes on windshields to make it a pain in the wipers to get clear. <laughs> uh, yes, indeed. I remember those days. Yeah. It snowed in uh, it snowed in uh, Dover by the uh, Cochico River uh, recently, um, but I wasn't there. Then, <laughs> <laughs> hey, wait a minute. If it snow falls on the Cochico River and you're not there, did it really happen? Uh, you know, that's why I've got video. That's why I've got security uh, uh, webcams. I can watch <laughs> and talk about Freudenschaden. What's going on? Oh, um, so uh, I don't know which one of these ones we want to go here. Uh, we got a kid who stole King Air. Who would have thought it was possible? Um, and uh, and we got uh, mystery drones in Colorado. Which um, one you like? Uh, so well, easy the, to fly. A teenager can start it. A King Air. Yeah. It should be part of their marketing from now on, right? Just, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so what happened here? It was like. I saw. I think I saw video, right? I remember seeing video. There, this, there is video, yeah. Of yes, this, of this airplane careening around the ramp. Um, it was actually kind of distant, as I recall. Yeah, I'll read the the lead graph from this story. This yeah. is Fresno, California, Dateline. A 17-year-old girl is in custody after she got into an empty plane and crashed it into a building and fence, according to Fresno Yosemite International Airport officials. Um. um yeah. Apparently, rather troubled seventeen-year-old. But, um, but, um, what? What? I mean, is there any the, more to this the story? Gr- about the girl's mother says her daughter doesn't even know how to drive a car. Oh, see, this is giving it's even more mysterious here. Yeah. So, what? What is involved in starting at least even one engine on a King Air? Because those are turbines, right? It's not running like, the checklist. It's, it's not yeah. like a car where you turn the key and it starts, right? It's, it's a PT six from Pratt and Whitney, and uh, depending on what model, how old the King Air is, it yeah. may be as simple as flipping a switch, pushing a button, and moving a lever into the start position, and uh-huh. just waiting for the automation to take over. Uh, if it's an older King Air, uh, you do the start button and as it turns then you introduce fuel and then you mm-hmm. introduce the burners and yeah, yeah. and uh, it, it it's a procedure yeah uh, no that's the videos i've seen of people starting these turbines is is uh, it's always a, you know it's like you gotta like get it started and let it spin for a while and i don't know if it's a speed or a pressure thing or a temperature thing but then event like you said it's a process so well it, um, that that process has been slowly and steadily whittled down thanks to uh, automation technology. Uh, well, maybe, maybe I don't know. What's the story say about what model does it say? It's a King Air 200, according to the story. And so what does that make it? New or old? Could be either. It, it, well, yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm looking at it. It's got apparently five-blade prop or had five-blade props, um, <laughs> <laughs> which means that it's been re-engined at least once. And, yeah. And uh, probably... Um, 
um, yeah. a uh, I can't see the, all the pictures here, but uh, it's probably what's that? Is it a blackbird, blackthorn? What's the oh uh, blackhawk? Blackhawk that yeah. that that mod. Um, yeah, if pop- it's a blackhawk upgrade, yeah. upgrade. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's probably got one. auto start. It's probably going to have auto start. Yeah. Um, but but then again, you know, accidents do happen, and people can have been known to start these airplanes with not really knowing what the hell they're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's what happens after that that gets it makes That's it right. more interesting. That's right, right, right. You, you can, and, as as a friend of mine demonstrated years and years ago, you can mash on those on those pedals on the floor all you want, but unless you do it the right way, you're not going to have any brakes. Well, and and I'm I'd be willing to bet that she didn't realize. That's a few a few people on 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 social media pointed out that that she must have been quite shocked when she discovered that that the steering wheel didn't work. Uh, <laughs> um, that's and, a good point. Uh, you know, that's a good point. Uh, and then add to that the likelihood that she probably only started one engine. I mean, you can kind of yeah. Uh, so that she only started that one led one. it to kind of not go in a straight line right. too. Right. Um, so uh, yeah. So, anyways, though, you know, though, I mean, once she gets all the legal aspects of this straightened out, um, um, you know, given the shortage of pilots, she may have a future in the airlines. You never know. You yeah. Because know. So, she's got some level of aptitude, apparently. Yeah. Oh, I heard that Spirit was Spirit Airlines was already trying to recruit her. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That was, that was Higdon, H-I-G-D-O-N, Higdon. <clears throat> um, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, Oh, uh, uh, yeah. She doesn't have a logbook yet, though, because... The, well, she's got some sort of log now. Well, she's got, a, she's got a record, but um, uh, she doesn't have a log... Can't do a logbook entry because there was no intent for, for flight. I don't know. Uh, she, well, she, she should definitely wear a pilot's uniform with captain's bars when she goes to the prom. Absolutely. Absolutely. There we go. All right. Well, on that note, welcome, folks, to Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. Uh, I'm Jack Hodgson, coming to you today not from uh, the the banks of the Cochico River, from but from the, uh, the Hidden River home for uh, wayward aviators and Lonely Hearts Club, uh, where uh, it's, it's Jeb likes to add that Lonely Hearts Club part. I, I don't typically do that, but uh, I, I can't really judge. Well, your life hasn't been like mine. I, well, I think okay. I don't know how to respond to that. That's interesting. Anyways, I'm coming. I'm, I'm Jeb's guest here at Hidden River, and uh, thank you, Jeb. It's uh, always fun. I've been here for four or five days now, and uh, we've uh, we we haven't gone flying, um, but uh, we've had a few adventures. We went out and had uh, lunch with a, with a local listener uh-huh. uh, yesterday. That was fun, and. Uh, and then I went down and had lunch with uh, Amy the other day, um, and uh, and uh, we had a nice chat and and went off and uh, had a look in on uh, on an airplane that her husband Barry is helping to build there at her air park, and that was kind of fun. So it's a it's a good visit so far, and I'm still here for a few more days, and uh, then I head back to New Hampshire for a day, and then off to a, a, a yet another adventure, work related adventure. And I'm here talking to in our in our virtual hangar with my two good friends. Uh, one of those voices there from uh, some from the uh, air capital of the world, Wichita, Kansas, is Dave Higdon. Good morning, David. How you doing? I said Higdon. I know how to say your name. It just didn't come out right. Good morning, David. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Chubb. Uh, Good morning. It is uh, a, 
an inconclusive day to, here today. We can't de- decide whether we're going to have a clear sky or a cloudy sky, but it's not going to be frigid. It's not supposed to be snowing, and that's all well and good in January in mm-hmm. Kansas. Yeah. Yeah. What a coinkydink. It's not supposed to be snowing here today either. <laughs> yeah. How, what a what what a coinkydink. Yeah. Yeah. Um it was freezing cold here, Jeb though. It was. It was like almost literally freezing cold. Yeah, it was in the thirties. Um I'm not sure it got to the thirties here. Here. Per se. Apparently other places in Florida it yeah. did, but yeah. uh um, it got pretty close here, though, I think. It got pretty close. close I woke up in the middle of the night, looked at my iPad just to see what the temperature was. And, and it's, for, for this area, Weather Underground said it was 34 degrees, feels like 27, is what it said. Oh, now what a coincidence that is, because 34 is what it got down to here last night. Well, see, there you go. There so you go. it's, yes, there's a joke there someplace. Feel our pain. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Uh, and that other voice here uh, in our virtual hangar is uh, my good friend from uh, somewhere near Sarasota, Florida, Jeb Burnside. Good morning, Jeb. Good morning to you. How's it going? I'm good. Long I'm good. Well, I'm in Florida yeah, while it's cold, cold, you. cold yeah. in New Hampshire. So yeah. uh, I'm, how, I'm how perfectly bad happy. How right? Yeah. And uh, uh, so it, it, for anybody who wants to get a pic, uh, you know, kind of a, a mental picture of this whole thing might think that because I'm at Hidden River, Jeb and I are like sitting around the table on the lanai or something like that with microphones. And we're not, unfortunately. We don't have the gear to do, the, do it that way. So we, we continue to use our voice over IP system like usual. He Jeb's in his normal home office where he always is. And I'm in his little breakfast nook here where I've taken efforts to make it a little less echoey sounding, but chances are people can hear um, a little bit of an echo in the background. I apologize for that. I'm going to try and get rid of it in post-production, but we'll see what happens. Well, um, uh, Buddy, Buddy Holly used empty egg cartons. So. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I think Steve Tupper has done that, too. So, uh, yeah, um, that, that's a possibility. Yeah, Steve it, Tupper can't sing like Buddy Holly could. I don't know. Steve Tupper, you know, he's he's a music guy. Steve Tupper's got his finger. Steve, well, we could talk about Steve. I don't know if we should or not. <laughs> um, uh, what's going on with you, Jeb? Anything else? You? Uh... Um, no, nothing much. Um, not really getting much done this week on a magazine or anything. Your airplane is, is technically grounded as a result of a little metal plate. It, well, it's not. Yeah, I mean, I can go put a replacement plate on it and go fly. But That's why I meant kind of know. technically grounded. Yeah, but yeah. strictly speaking, um, well, they're right there on your counter. I'm looking at them. Exactly right. Um, it's all it takes to ground an airplane. It, well. It, is, the mis, is, the, is the absence of a, would it be accurate to call that an inspection cover? Yeah, it's a... Um, Wing attachment bolt cover. Got it. Okay. okay. Um, yes, it's sometimes removed for inspection, but uh, uh, this one just kind of popped off one day. Yeah. And uh, fortunately, it yeah. did so on the ground. You found it on the ground. I found yeah. it like two weeks later um, on isn't my driveway. Ir- yeah, isn't it ironic places. that you were walking along the route which you flew over? Oh, I guess it wasn't while you were flying. Well, taxied over. While you were taxiing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, 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 of course, Textron Aviation will tell you that they can have that replacement part for you in sometime between four and six years. Well, interesting you mention that. Um, I got the parts book out and looked up the part number for it. And went online to Textron's uh, parts uh, distribution uh, website. And sure enough, they had eight of them in stock. And Get I ordered, out. I'm serious. And I ordered one, <clears throat> and it got here two days later. 
and I screwed up. I ordered the wrong part number. I ordered the part number for the opposite wing. <laughs> okay. And I just didn't move my finger down next the next line to read everything there was to read. So <clears throat> I went back online to get one for the correct wing, and they have none in stock. Mm-hmm. And so, then you found the old one. And, and No, I already had the old one. But huh. it, there's a there's a clip that's riveted onto it, and um, the the clip on on the one that came off the airplane, the original one, uh, wasn't. Uh, I didn't want to use it to. Um, I don't. I, it's not serviceable. Let's put it that way. I don't, I don't want to replace. I don't want to put it back on with that same clip. Gotcha. So, um, I just said, oh, I'll just get another one. You know, it, it was. It, it wasn't free. But it wasn't exorbitant, all things considered, for airplane mm-hmm. parts either. Well, that's always good. Yeah, well, um, you, but I haven't gotten around to calling Textron and saying, "Hey, guys, you know, you got them for this wing. How about for the other wing?" So I don't know. We'll see. Um, I've got enough parts, both new and used, to cobble something together. Uh, but I have to drill out some rivets, and I have to to squeeze some rivets, and I just haven't had the the patience or the or the time to to really dive into it like mm-hmm. that. So it is what it is. Yeah, I made that mistake one time. I bought a whole bunch of nails that were only good for the left hand wall, and uh, that's, yeah. a, that's a very obscure <laughs> joke. Um, it, it perhaps needs to be visual. I don't know. <laughs> I'm uh, gonna. I'm going to query you on this link. You don't even get it. See, okay. Think about it. You'll laugh in about two items down the list. You'll see. Um, let's see now. We got a couple of follow-ups here from past episodes. Uh, it's been a really long time since we recorded, it, partly due to kind of some creative scheduling we were trying to do, and then we had to do a cancellation as well. So it's been uh, a long and then we time. Had the holidays and, and the holidays, yeah. and then uh, you know. So uh, um, this is a monstrous list that we're never going to get through today, but we'll see what we can do here. Um, one bit of follow up: um, we talked, I think, on the last episode or one of the last couple episodes about TFRs. We were talking about the Disney TFR in Orlando, um, and we thought at the time that there was no TFR over the Anaheim Disneyland, or at least Did we I say thought. that, or we just say we didn't know. I think I thought there wasn't one. Um, I'm not sure. I don't recall exactly what you guys said. Um, we heard pretty quickly from um, a couple of different listeners um, who pointed us to, out to us that there surely is a, yeah. a, a t- full-blown TFR over the Anaheim, uh, the California Disney uh, Disney uh, Land, and uh, you know, not unlike the one in, in Florida. So there we go. Um, it's a. Uh, I saw a reference to these two TFRs one time. Uh, l- later on the list, I don't know if we're going to get to it or not, but we may talk about prohibited areas. And and I was reading an article about you know how many prohibited areas there are in the country, and then it sort of almost parenthetically said, and then of course there's these there's these Disney temporary flight restriction areas that are yeah. not really temporary anymore. Um, they're actually permanent by legislation. I didn't know That's this. Correct. Yes. That's correct. Um, so they're they're not really TFRs. Um, they're something else. I, you know, they're, they're PF, PFRs. Yeah, they're permanent temporary flight restricted areas. Oh, just um, drop the T. Just, well, just you know, it's, you know, it, hey, the FAA has its terminology. We better not mess with the FAA. When, so, when, okay. when have you ever known it in Congress to do anything temporary that stuck? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. They've done a lot of things that have stuck that I wish didn't stick, but that's maybe a story for a different podcast. Um, so that's one bit of follow-up, unless there's something else you want to add about the uh, Disney TFRs, PTFRs, PFRs. Um, 
the next bit of business here is uh, just to follow up real quick um, on, I just want to make an observation here. I kind of want to like, you know, um, credit where credit is due. Um, uh, in past, for, for about a few months now, we've been talking about the whole chapters thing of, uh, of the way the podcast metadata works and some podcast players can show the chapters information. And I was asking whether it was worth it to people. Um, did they want me to go to the effort of continuing to put chapters in there? Um, and I very quickly heard from enough listeners that I said, I'm going to do it. I'll, I'll go to the effort. Here's what I interesting is. So in the process of kind of trying to streamline the workflow so that I could keep doing chapters, I discovered something. Um, and uh, um, so uh, in the world of audio, there are at least two uh, file formats for uncompressed audio. The one that everyone's familiar with is WAV, W-A-V. Um, the one that some people are less familiar, but Apple people are very familiar with is AIF, or also known as AIFF. Um, and because I'm an Apple guy, I've always used AIFF, thinking that it was basically the same thing as WAVE. What I discovered with my research is that um, that the wave format contains metadata um, or can contain metadata, and that the audio software that I use now, which is Adobe Audition, the audio software, if I put markers, what they call them markers in the audio file, all right um, and, and kind of just structure them properly, um, they will automatically get exported with the wave file and automatically get imported into our podcasting production process. Hmm. And so the labor intensiveness of it basically went away. I mean, just completely went away. It's, it's actually trivially easy now. So um, uh, a bit of research that I wouldn't have done if a handful of listeners, a good handful of listeners, hadn't stepped up and said, we like this, please do it. Cool. So, uh, but so I hate to admit when a bit of Apple technology is not the best there is, but in this particular instance, uh, wave files are better. Hate even saying that out loud makes me. I was, I was going to say that's rather a bold I know, statement. Huh? I know. Yeah. Um, we got email from listener Bill M. Uh, who actually, I'm not sure if this is actually a follow up, but we'll we'll pretend it's a follow up because because it's from yeah, a listener. We'll, yeah, we'll call it a follow up. Um. um Listener uh, Bill M. Uh, referred us to a, I believe it's an, is it FAA? Ad, AC, that's advisory circular. Ad, advisory circular. Right. That, that, I just woke up Siri. Um, so. Uh, <laughs> How did you do that, AC? I don't know. I don't to, know what to, I said. Say, not tonight, dear. I have a headache. <laughs> Hang on. We've got to put my phone someplace where she can't hear me. I don't know if that's going to be possible. There we go. Um, advisory circular um, about thunderstorm places around America. Um, let's see. Now, I'm reading from his email. He said, he, and he addressed this to Jeb. Um, he said, advisory circular 0054, page 7, shows a map of the continental U.S. by average thunderstorm days. And, uh, and then Bill M. observed that Clearwater, Florida, which is just up the road from here, mm-hmm. has the highest concentration of thunderstorms in America, um, which is kind of interesting. I don't know. Um, and he, he wanted to know whether you took that, I mean, whether or not you knew that fact, do you take thunderstorms, how much do you take them into consideration mm-hmm. in your flight planning? Yeah. Um, a, first of all, the same gentleman um, sent us a different uh, second question. And I, I only saw the second one. I'm just seeing the first one now. Oh, did I miss uh, the second one? No, okay, I don't remind know. me I don't, what the second I don't, one was. I don't know how or why, but it is it's uh it is what it is. Yeah. Um I think two things. One, um 
as a rule, there are exceptions, but as a rule, uh, Florida thunderstorms are neither as big nor as violent as thunderstorms elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, um, I don't know anything about northern about thunderstorms in northern Colorado, but I do know that there's going to be a lot of orographic lifting. Um, I'm sorry, they, say that again. Lifting, orographic lifting. Orographic. Um, orographic lifting, I think okay. is the word. Write that uh, down. Um, this has to do with air moving over uh, surfaces, uh, uh, rising okay. surfaces specifically, and um, the mountains in northern Colorado. And as that air moves over, if it's moist, it's going to get additional lift, and it's going to... Um, uh, be more prone to uh, thunderstorms. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the real question here is, I think, from, from Bill, is um, has to do with why do microbursts appear to be more prevalent over northern Colorado versus uh, Florida? Mm-hmm. And I think the answer is just that, that A, the thunderstorms are can be bigger and generally uh, stronger, uh, and B, that that's because of the lifting action that the, the mountainous terrain affords. Mm-hmm. None of that exists near Clearwater. We have plenty of, of, of uh, water. We have plenty of moisture in the air. And we do see uh, thunderstorms moving in, in fronts and, and moving lines and clusters and things. But typically, the, the, the typical Florida thunderstorm is an air mass thunderstorm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and is one that just... Uh, by virtue of the heat and humidity, uh, are created as the day wears on during the summertime or during thunderstorm season, however you want to put it. Um, those are kind of the fundamental differences between the two types of thunderstorms, or at, but, least, at least the thunderstorms up in Clearwater and in northern Colorado. But does that tend to make them more randomly appearing down here? Yeah. yeah. Uh, random is another word that you have to kind of use with some care. Um, Air mass thunderstorms are, to me, are distinguished uh, by their distribution over a geographic area mm-hmm. and are formed uh, as a result of moist air being heated uh, by, this, by uh, uh, the sun as the, as, uh, as the day wears on. Um, they build, they turn into cumulus, they build, they become... Uh, uh, I'm sorry, they, they, they gain vertical development, and um, that starts the life cycle of a thunderstorm. Okay. Uh, but there is no front uh, or um, um, you know, maybe a pressure area or a trough or something like that along which uh, thunderstorms might form. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's one of the – so there's – they're over a wider spread area – than uh, something that might be frontal in nature. Um, and that affords, um, well, I would say, perhaps easier avoidance. If you're trying to uh, get from point A to point B and there's some thunderstorms in the way, um, hope that they're air mass thunderstorms so you, you can spot them and go around them more easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they're moving in lines and clusters along a front or a trough or something like that, um, they're certainly predictable in that they're going to move, continue to move along that, that front or that trough, but uh, they may form a barrier and prevent you from, from getting to where you want to get. 
uh, obvious solution is to land and wait them out. Mm-hmm. David, thunderstorms are a little bit more of a thing in Kansas, aren't they? Uh, yeah, they uh, they have a, a, a tendency to, uh, well, when the system's strong enough to grow from thunderstorms to tornado weather. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we get these big frontal storms uh, here as opposed to along the particularly the uh, west coast of Florida where they get these uh, locally developed storms. I mean, July and August, you can just about set your clock by the afternoon thunderstorms that have come mm-hmm. along places like Clearwater and, and St. Right. Pete and, and watch the thunderstorm for 30 minutes and then it goes away and then you can see all the water it dumped evaporating back up into the air and feeding the next cycle. Uh we get local thunderstorms here that develop, but there's usually some uh, some air mass activity that encourages it. Uh, wind shear can help that mm-hmm. that develop, uh, and when they grow into tornadoes here, uh, it's uh, an event worth paying attention to because mm-hmm. yeah. they those tornadoes can. St- grow to be as big as a mile and a half two miles across and uh think about that a twister that's a mile and a half in diameter and it's on the ground for 18 19 20 miles yeah and it's like watching a vacuum cleaner go across the landscape and just decimate everything that's down there uh on the flip side uh population density in and the housing density in Kansas is uh, low enough through the, most of the middle and the western part that a lot of our tornadoes uh, barely damage any outbuildings, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, but let alone houses. Right. And then right. we get ones like we had here in uh, April of 91. I'd only been here a couple of months, and... The tornado started southwest of Wichita, cut across a town called Hayesville, through a town called Derby, into South Wichita, hit the Boeing factory, did a leapfrog over the uh, alert pins where armed, uh, nuclear-armed B-1B bombers were stationed, came down on the hospital, blew up the hospital, and then stayed on the ground for another 10 or 11 miles killed 19 people ouch uh they uh they let reporters like me on the air force base after that and it was stunning to see the base hospital that i'd toured about a week earlier and pretty much all that was left was the foundation and this air force truck you know with the blue color and the serial number stenciled on it and Half of it was in a tree next to the hospital. The other half of it was a quarter of a mile away in another tree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It broke it in two. Wow. And, Crazy. Uh, yeah, these tornadoes, big deal. you got to take obviously take those very seriously. Well, um, we, got a, we had a great advance here uh, a few years ago. Uh, enough of our county commissioners voted in favor of spending the money to upgrade our tornado siren system so that it is now localized 
So if the weather service says that there's a storm and the epicenter is mo- or the center is moving toward this particular neighborhood, the uh, tornado sirens come on for that area as opposed to coming on for the entire county, oh, which okay. is what it used to do. And people got to the point where they just weren't paying any attention to it sure. when it was countywide. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. so uh, anyways, before we move on here, uh, Jeb, I'm, so you talk about there not being any of this, what you say, orographic lifting. Um, in Florida. I'm surprised you don't get some of that lifting action from uh, right up the road. We've got the, the Florida Highlands. Um, the highest point in Florida is like 250 feet. Uh, all right. yes. And that's up around the, the Alabama state border in the yes. Panhandle. But it's um, called the Highlands. Yes. There are, you know, there are a lot or, of, or Bee Ridge. Bee there, Ridge could like... There, Cause some lifting. There, get some are, lift, there are a lift, lot of lift. things in Florida that are named inappropriately. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I remember there was a lot of real estate developers very creative with names back in the day. Yeah. yeah. Um, let, let me point out also that I didn't mean to imply that Florida is the only area of the U.S. or for the world of the world that matter that gets air mass thunderstorms. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Moving on here. Um, so listen, uh, with the passing of January 1st, 2020, um, a major aviation milestone. Um, so, so next gen is now complete after years and years of development. It's done, finished, right? No. <laughs> Wait a minute. What, what, what did we go through this whole ADSB thrash for? That's what this is all about. This is the, the capping great. No. So That's just, so- one, just one part of next gen. So next gen, it was it was the biggest part for, for the users because they were the ones that had to go out and equip for ABSB out. Yeah, but it's not the only part of next gen, and it's by far not done yet. So, so all around America, there are still controllers who are looking at radar returns on amber-colored uh, CRT screens. Shouldn't be by now. No, that that got changed years ago. Uh, but the uh, they're still adding they're still adding uh, ground stations to the ADSB network. Yeah. I, I learned recently, and I thought they were comp- I thought they had completed that part of it. But they completed the uh, baseline for the minimum operational capabilities that they were seeking, and uh, they're adding more stations in places that are thin on stations now. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else is there left to do? Yeah, right. That's what I mean. Yeah, it's done. We've only been talking about next gen since literally the beginning of this podcast, like thir- whatever, 13 years ago, 40, yeah. 40 years ago. It's a long time ago. <laughs> it was a long time ago, whenever it was. We were doing podcasts before podcasts became a thing. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, so um, all kidding aside, um, we've, we have passed the magic date, and uh, you are no longer allowed without very special permission to uh, fly your airplane in rural airspace um, without uh, ADSB out. Are we hearing any stories yet? Are we hearing any? Um, I heard an interesting one. Um, it was, I think it was literally on January 1st, and somebody on social media called attention to a FlightAware track of a uh, Canadian Air Canada airliner that um, one of these regular routes every day or multiple times a day, and it always in the past would fly more or less direct from Halifax to, like, Toronto. 
um, which is to say across Maine and northern New Hampshire. Um, But on January 1st, um, it very methodically followed a route that took it all the way around the outside of Maine. And, uh, kept it kept it in uh, kept it in airspace. Canadian airspace. People are speculating that this was because the aircraft was not equipped with ADSB and therefore well, was not allowed in the airspace. There is supposedly a Bahamian carrier. Um, yeah, that I don't. I'm not going to even try to guess the name of it, but I, but um, apparently they all of a sudden couldn't fly into the U.S. or at least with some of their fleet because those aircraft are not. Equipped with ADSB out, mm-hmm. and we're talking um, not King Airs, but we're talking seven thirty sevens. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm pretty sure they got the word, but I, I don't know what the again I don't know what the disposition of that was. Right, um, and there's all these programs for either getting um, getting exclusion, you know, temporary one time one shot um, exclusions. And then there's also the well, and then the second story about ADSB is all about the privacy stuff. Mm-hmm. Are we hearing any actual instances of this kind of stuff? Have you heard guys heard anything? You know, it, it's uh, been almost anticlimactic to, since the first of the year, uh, and the only thing that I've seen it, at least repeated is the FAA's uh, publication of. The process that you have to go through if you want to get a waiver to use rural airspace without ADSB, right? Mm-hmm. And the process is actually a little simpler and a little easier in reading it than I expected it to be when the FAA announced they were going to make this available. Uh, and I think no no less than an hour before and no more than 24 hours before you need to leave. Well, if they can get you a waiver in an hour, uh, that's probably one of the fastest things I've ever heard of coming out of the FAA. I was going to say, that's a, that's a deal. Go for yeah. it. Yeah. But and, they uh, they don't want you using it repeatedly, and I'm sure there's going to come a point when somebody's going to go, uh, yeah, I need to reposition the airplane over to a hundred dollar hamburger, and hmm. it's coming out of a Bravo airspace. And about the fourth time or fifth time that happens, the controller's going to say, uh, "No, yeah. <laughs> call Uber and have your burger delivered." It's, it's going to be like checking the New York Times website. After a while, they're not going to let you do it anymore. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, and that's why. I, I, although I would imagine that that we wouldn't hear about most ADSB busts that might be happening, um, unless they, in, in, you know, resulted in some sort of crazy incident. Um, you know, it's just going to be call the tower, and somebody's going to get a lecture, and maybe even a restriction. But right? Or am I wrong about that? <sighs> it depends. I mean, I don't expect most of these to become public, uh, at least not right off. But if we get a if we get a, a swarm of them, like drones over Colorado, uh, kind of swarm of people flying without ADSB out and not getting the waiver or requesting too many waivers, uh, it will eventually make news. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, here we go. Yeah. Strap, uh, you know, right. strap in because uh, rural airspace is here, and uh, 
Anyways, um, speaking of bad ideas, uh, so uh, David. <laughs> okay, well, that is a segue. Yeah, um, David, you you're uh, you telling us that the uh, U.S. Congress is up to some hijinks here. What's going on? Yeah, a few things are more resilient, particularly where Congress is concerned, than bad ideas. And uh, the uh, bad idea that I'm pointing out here uh, was. Uh, introduced into congress uh back in december it was, it, it was a it was a early christmas present for the aviation community uh member of congress wants to pass the aircraft noise reduction act uh hr 5423 and the uh idea behind the act is the uh Local communities would be given regulatory authority over the airspace and access thereof uh, to set their own rules on what could fly there at what noise levels and when. And that's like, well, we have a unified system that's equal all over the United States for a reason. And so that we're not changing the rules every time we change political borders. So... That was a good idea to make the FAA preemptive and the FAA regs preemptive on controlling airspace, airport access, and transit the United States airspace. This is a lousy idea. Mm-hmm. This is basically wanting to go back to the situation that existed in the 20s when each airport the, the had 19, its own access rules. The 1920s. 1920s, yeah, I hadn't even thought of that. They were in the 20s again. Uh, the 1920s, thank you, Jeb. Uh, when each airport had its own rules and each airline had its own controllers, which is one of the reasons why they developed a, a national air traffic control system because the different controllers op- operating for different airlines at these airports with different regulations were uh, uh, causing some problems like mid-airs and accidents <laughs> on the runway and stuff that shouldn't be going on. So the uh, Commerce Department was uh, charged with regulating uh, the airways and regulating the uh, production of aircraft. And at at the time, they were even allowed to regulate where airlines could go and what they could charge. No, mm-hmm. that went away in 79. Uh, but this, can you imagine the crazy quilt of different rules if you took off from an airport where the, the, the national rules are in effect and fly into an airport where, and, and I can see this coming up big in New York and L.A., where one of the communities with an airport says, well, you can't fly in here after 6 o'clock at night, and if your noise level is above 80 dB from a half a mile away, and uh, so sorry, go elsewhere. Uh That'd be a hell of a book to publish if you started regulating, if you started letting regulation by local communities right. at the 500-odd air carrier airports and the 5,000 GA airports that we have in this country. Well, it's we, a dumb idea. Yeah, but we still do have some of that on various levels. I think uh, John Wayne Orange County limits departures. Uh, they, they cannot start before 7 a.m., 
uh, it used to be DCA had some kind of a noise-related curfew um, back in the day where um, basically jets couldn't uh, land or depart um, if they, let me put it another way, no aircraft could land or depart if it had certain noise characteristics. Uh, the tower was open 24-7 at National, I think, back in the day, but uh, um, it effectively shut down um, mm-hmm. because of the noise limitations. Now, some operators, some carriers um, with the MD-80 figured out a way to what I call the slam dunk uh, approach to get into DCA, but they couldn't get back out until 7 a.m. Um, uh, various things like that. And I think some of that still exists. Uh, I don't know what the noise restraints are at National. I don't know specifically about Orange County. Um, but um, and, and some of these rules are, are uh, uh, how should I put this? They're... they're um, they're federal in the sense that uh, if your aircraft isn't this quiet, doesn't meet this this noise uh, abatement standard, then you can't you can't fly in there. And the the noise abatement standard is is uh, you know something FAA recognized. Uh, but so many other restrictions are indeed local, and uh, uh, we, we do need to to how should we say smooth the peaks and valleys out mm-hmm. yeah. yeah okay so well we went this through this we went through this 30 years ago oh yeah yeah in 1990 1990 i say 1990 and go wow that was 30 years ago holy yeah. crap uh congress passed the airport noise and capacity act and that that law affirmed that aviation should be a federally regulated uh-huh. And it stopped be an epidemic of local noise restrictions that had begun to threaten the efficiency and safety of our nation's airports. And it provided a, a process for scrutinizing noises and other access res- restrictions. It didn't outlaw them, but it set guidelines and, and, uh, and uh, decimal levels and pr- produced a process that if an airport like John Wayne or National, uh, one of them, the local communities want some restrictions imposed. Uh, there's a federal process to go through. Right. But this bloody bill would uh, basically give the uh, local communities the uh, ability to do that regulating on their own. And uh, it's, it's just it's, you can't you can't run a system that way. No. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Jeb, anything you want to add to this nope. before we move on here? Nope. Okay. Um, we don't think this is going to pass, though, right? I mean, it's it's. We should keep an eye on these things, but yeah. we're yes, no. We uh, we we would not begin to predict what these. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So maybe a phone call to your your uh, your representatives would be in order, right? Uh, 
yeah, okay. if you can get through. Well, um, see, the, the bill would let small airports, whatever that means, set curfews, limit the number and types right. of aircraft that can operate. Yeah. Uh, it would also prohibit the FAA from withholding federal funds from any airports that chose to regulate aircraft noise. There she blows. There she blows. We will try and put in the show notes a link to one of these services that helps you to uh, send messages to your elected representatives. And uh, if you're so inclined, you might use that or some other mechanism. Um, so uh, we're not exactly reaching the end of our allotted time, but we are uh, having a good time here. So I'm going to jump ahead just a little bit. Um, what do you mean? Never mind. What? Nothing. No. Nothing. Uh, Super Bowl uh, notum, because that's happening. Well, so people will probably hear this podcast before the Super Bowl, but not a lot before. And uh, I was just in Miami. I think I told you this, mentioned this in the Super Bowl prep is, is already taking hold there. Um, uh, Jeb and I were looking at uh, the, uh, uh, that area in foreflight yesterday, and it is a it is a a, a cornucopia uh, of a cornucopia of, TF, of, of TFRs. I mean, multiple overlapping. I think there was one point where there was not simply two coexistent TFRs on a particular point, but three. Yeah. Um, the, there are, there's two big concentric ones. There's a bunch of little ones. It's all complicated by the fact that not only do we have football TFRs, but we have a couple of golf, t- you know, uh, presidential golf uh, TFRs in that area as well. So it's just a, a crazy area. Um, I don't know what there is to say about it. David, you put this on the list. Is there anything particular you wanted to uh, comment about this or... Yeah. Well, most mostly to to be aware. Yeah, uh, you know, you you Jeb, I we all have friends that live and fly in Florida, who may not think all that far ahead about deciding to say fly from uh, from uh, West Palm Beach down to Key West for lunch, and go stumbling through a TFR intensive uh, piece of airspace getting there. Uh, when they need to go around, go by way of Everglades City, for example, uh, and stay out of that mess. So, yeah, this was mostly as, as a heads up on my confidence that this will be posted before the Super Bowl. Yes, <laughs> I think I think it will. Probably will. No promises, but probably. There, you know, ever since TFRs became a thing in, in 2000, 2001, <clears throat> excuse me, um, the, the issue of... Um, plotting them, identifying them, becoming aware of them uh, has always been out there. It has been uh, has grown in importance. And the safest way to forget for flight, forget uh, um, you know uh, any other uh, EFB app, but the safest way to ensure that your flying is not going to conflict with the TFR is to call flight service mm-hmm. and ask them. And that does two things: one, it gives you the latest information. Two, it covers your butt because you on the you, record. Yeah. You're, you're on you're on record with the flight with the official FAA flight service briefing mechanisms. Um, and if they say your your flight plan has no TFR conflicts, you're golden. You you've done your duty. Yeah, I've commented about this on the podcast before. How I, I find it. Uh, maybe I should be embarrassed to say this, but I find it notable that you, Jeb, you you do call them. I just about every flight I've noticed. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, I, I wonder what the percentages. Is there data about this? Huh? I mean, has what percentage of people plan flights only online? I wonder. Um, there's no data because we don't know how many people 
planned flights. Well, there's that too. Yeah. So, anyways, yeah, Super Bowl modem, uh, modem, notum, um, and uh, and it, it's a madhouse. It, I mean, it, what would a Super Bowl modem look like? I don't know. I don't know. But, kind of uh, oval, oval shaped. But it would involve a huge licensing fee. I, I think we're actually <laughs> violating somebody's um, uh, copyright and trademark by even saying the word Super Bowl. Um, you, they're very, very protective of it. So um, let's just say Super Bowl a couple more times and just. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I hate to that. change this, change the tone here, but I did want to talk about one one kind of sa- sad, definitely sad thing. Um, Murray Smith. Yeah. Um, so I'm familiar with the publication. I, I know the title, P- Professional Pilot Magazine, um, but I confess that I, I don't never really know the name Murray Smith. I'm sure you guys did. Yeah. Um, um, either one of Dave, you put it on the list, but uh, Jeb or Dave, t- tell me a little bit about Murray Smith. Please. Oh, um, Murray has been around um, the aviation publishing industry about as long as anyone has, or I should say had, uh, recently passed. Um, ProPilot was very reader-oriented. It was, uh, they kind of pioneered, if you will, um, things like reader polls and uh, um, best-of contests within the industry, best FBO, best customer service rep, uh, things like this. Um, Clearly uh, designed for... Uh, the professional pilot generally uh, in, in corporate and business operations, but also certainly in, in airline operations. Um, thing with ProPilot is ProPilot kind of gave me my start in, uh, in aviation publishing, aviation writing. Mm-hmm. Um, years ago, back when I was doing some, some uh, uh, moonlighting uh, from my day job, and uh, was doing some of the the news briefs, the the news section of the magazine, and I got to know a lot of people uh, as a result of that. Uh, not least of which, of course, you know, the two of you guys. But um, um, worked with Murray uh, uh, personally. Uh, worked with uh, his staff uh, a lot more. Um, got to know him, um, and uh, thoroughly, you know, benefited from that association. I would be uh, remiss, I would be uh, um, uh, non-intuitive, non-ingenuous, uh, disingenuous, I should say, if I didn't note that Murray had a, his own personality uh, and uh, um, sometimes could be uh, difficult uh, to work with, uh, could be, um, um, I don't know, difficult to work with, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, he he knew the industry. He knew what he was doing. He knew his end of the business, and you have to give him a lot of credit for that. Um, yeah. He he basically started up ProPilot from scratch, and uh, I don't know his his role in recent years. Uh, I know he stepped back a bit, um, but uh, he's clearly a fixture in this industry, and clearly. Uh, someone who got it to where who helped get it to where it is, and someone whose uh, guidance, whose uh, input will be missed. Mm-hmm. David, I knew Mary. Uh, I got to know Murray early in my uh, aviation journalism career uh, when I was working at uh, the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association. Uh, Murray was up in our offices uh, 
not long after I hired in there, my boss, Charlie Spence, and uh, the head guy, uh, they all knew Murray well. Uh, uh, I believe we took Murray's uh, Baron to lunch someplace up in Pennsylvania. He was a fixture, uh, and it, it, it really – his creation was a, a brilliant beat, a brilliant piece of uh, observation. Uh, professional pilot was aimed, as, as Jeb said, is very reader-centric, and there wasn't really a magazine in existence at the time that, that, that catered to the, uh, to the folks that – fly for hire that uh, whether they're airline pilots or charter pilots or corporate pilots uh, people who fly for a living and uh he made a go of it for what 50 years at plus least. i don't know about 50 but um certainly 40 maybe 50 yeah mm-hmm. take take it back in the 70s absolutely yeah it's amazing dave and i uh, especially when we get around uh, old friends who have been around the aviation publishing industry for some time, it's uncommon for one of us to not have had some experience, some professional experience working for Murray Smith's magazine. It was almost a farm team uh, in, in, in many ways. Yeah. And, uh, That's uh, a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of people learned learned uh, a lot of the ropes from Murray back in the day. Yeah. So Delta dumped some fuel um, over what L.A. area? Yeah. Um, and it and it and it kind of well, there's there's it's controversial. It's kind of unclear the, the the density or whatever of this, but it did apparently land on some school kids, um, and uh, a lot of people are upset about this. Um, is this a thing? I mean, yeah. So um, our- there's two or three things going on here. Um, one, let's, let's set the stage. This was a trip seven, I think, launching for Shanghai or or, or Beijing out of out of LAX. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, one of the engines got into a, a compressor stall situation, and. Uh, uh, shortly after takeoff, they were, I don't think they got over 8,000 feet. Um, but um, I don't know if they declared an emergency either, but they definitely told ATC they wanted to return. And uh, I think they were asked, I think ATC was asking for, for souls on board and fuel available and all that. Mm-hmm. The crew clearly had their hands full. Yep. Um, and. Um, Managing a, uh, an engine out situation, running all the checklists, preparing the uh, airplane in the cabin for the return. Um, I think by definition, it was it was an overweight return. Mm-hmm. Sometime during the discussion with ATC, uh, the crew indicated uh, that they were not going to dump fuel. Oh, okay. I hadn't heard that. Go ahead. Uh, the, 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 I think the LA Times had some cockpit audio of, or the, you know, ATC live audio uh, of this. And uh, um, the crew clearly indicated, and I don't know the exact words they used, but they clearly indicated to ATC they were not going to dump fuel. Okay. Now, it's not clear to me when they began to dump fuel. Was it during that conversation? Was it later? 
uh, had they just not gotten to that part of the checklist yet, etc. Um, the other thing going on is they weren't aloft for long enough. Let me let me back up. It doesn't appear they were aloft airborne for long enough to dump a substantial amount of fuel, mm-hmm. the, the, especially the, the the amount of fuel that would get them under their max landing weight. Yeah. Uh, be that as it all may be, uh, they did apparently um, open the dump fuel valves, and they were doing so at an altitude less than 8,000 feet. Yeah. Uh, because that's as high as they got, and this was on, during the return. Um, so um, typically fuel dumps are done, A, over open water, B, from much higher altitudes, so that the fuel that is dumped has atomizes and basically evaporates before it, it reaches anything on the surface. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can debate all day long um, ecological ramifications of doing so, but we also have to debate, you know, the the, the dangers to the passengers right. to, of not doing so. So that all, all of that having been said, they apparently dumped fuel at a low altitude and and uh, did so um, over not one but s- uh, apparently several schools. Yes. yes. Uh, in in the LA area, not to mention, of course, you know, residences and businesses and, and other structures on the ground. Um, some teachers and children were. Um, uh, hospitalized. I don't know. Certainly, they they incurred minor injuries. Mm-hmm. I don't know about hospitalizations, um, but they were definitely quote injured unquote uh, by this this uh, jet fuel appearing out of thin air. Literally. Well, okay. I mean, were they in fact injured, or did it just frighten them? I think um, some of the you know, we have to define injury. Uh, you know, clearly, they weren't. Um, um, knocked down to the ground by this, this these gallons of fuel splashing over them, but equally apparent, they did get it in their in their hair and their eyes. Uh, they were exposed to the jet fuel, mm-hmm. and that in and of itself, um, you know, we've talked about this in relation to Avgas. I've been exposed to Avgas all my life, and nothing's wrong with with me with with, with me with, with with me. So you say, but yeah, so, okay. so 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 I say now. Um, <laughs> jet fuel of course has different properties than avgas and uh, um, the extent to which those properties are injurious i will leave to uh, um, others um, but it's not something that i would want to have happen to me i wouldn't want to be out um, and have a jet fly over and dump jet fuel on me yeah, uh, okay. and and I'm sure someone said, "Hey, you know, everybody just got free passes on Delta for life," and and that that may well be part of the settlement. I don't know. Yeah, well, as the, the, the fuel is coming down, it, it, particularly from the lower altitude, it can mist. It comes down in droplets. Uh-huh. Some of the kids, I understand from one of the stories I read, uh, were uh, they, they were concerned about them having uh, aspirated some of the jet uh-huh. fuel uh-huh. because it was thick in the air. And I remember when I uh, when I lived in Redondo Beach, south of L.A. proper. Uh, I was not that far from LAX, and uh, there were a couple of times where we heard on the radio that uh, the jet had declared an emergency, and it was out over the Pacific dumping fuel. And we all ran outside in the parking lot, and sure enough, you could see the jet. It was about four or five miles offshore, 
And when it came back across the coast, it was still above 10,000 feet. Yeah. Uh, and it came around and landed uneventfully. And you don't hear this kind of story about uh, most general aviation aircraft because their maximum takeoff weight is the same as their maximum landing weight. Right. But that's not true with most airliners and some of the larger business jets. Uh, there's a maximum landing weight there uh, beyond which the manufacturer is going to say, we didn't test the gear for that weight. And the last thing you want to do in the middle of an emergency is try to touch down and have the gear collapse on you because you're you're overweight. So they were getting around and holding on fine with the engine they had. Whether this was an inadvertent dump or somebody just got to it late on the checklist, uh, we'll have to wait on the report to come out yeah, to know yeah. that. So, okay. But this is not an everyday occurrence, and... If you live near an airport with airliners taken off, uh, you don't have to worry about getting yourself a jet fuel-proof umbrella. Yeah. Okay. Typically, um, you don't have to worry about that. Right. Right. I, I you know, uh, to neither to neither amplify nor diminish the seriousness of that particular event, I have to call attention to um, our, our colleague Paul Bertarelli over at AvWeb had kind of a funny uh, uh, opinion piece uh, column on this subject. The headline being, it's raining kerosene, question <laughs> mark, or why the 1950s kids had so much more fun. <laughs> and uh, and he tells, he, he puts it in the context of, of himself having grown up right. um, in the uh, in, in the oil fields of Texas's North Panhandle, um, where you know uh, petroleum contamination, if you will, was was everywhere, um, and and I think I don't know. I hope I'm being fair when I say that his theme was sort of like you know they need to get over themselves here. What's the big deal? Um, my favorite line from his story was he said, "As kids of the oil age, growing up in an oil town, we all had natural noses for complex hydrocarbon flash." <laughs> he says, and someone would have produced matches to try and light off the neighborhood. That's right. So uh, that's right. Um, well, it, it, well, on the drive from my home in uh, just just a mile off of downtown Wichita to uh, Stearman Field, formerly called Benton Air Park, uh, the, the drive takes me by I don't know a couple of dozen active and operating oil wells that they're pumping the little jack pumps are going up and down and they're pumping oil and and the aroma of crude when you're driving through those areas uh, mm-hmm. if if the winds are right not so strong that it blows a aroma all to hell but strong enough that it gives it some direction uh it can make the inside of the car mm-hmm. smell like a place where you don't want to light a cigarette yeah uh, yeah but the worst that I've ever encountered was uh, outside a little town in Alaska called Valdez. Uh, well, uh, okay. Yeah, the uh, newspaper I worked for decided that uh, none of their maritime writers had any experience with the National Transportation Safety Board. So they'd send the aviation guy up to uh, Alaska for the field hearings that were coming up in the and I talked him into letting me go over to uh, Valdez for a week after the hearings were over to get what the real story was. Uh, working on some of the beaches that they were cleaning up, uh, they were rotating people out about every hour. 
mm-hmm. because of the uh, aromatic exposure. And everybody's wearing hazard suits and breathing masks, uh, breathing masks that filter out the hydrocarbons. Uh, Mm-hmm. And and if you fell into the water, the yeah, helicopter came and got you and took you to the hospital ship because the water temperature was about 38. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, but the aroma, uh, it, it was hell getting it off the boots. Yeah, okay. All right. Well, my final thought on this is, is with apologies to Robert Duvall, Robert Duvall said, uh, I love the smell of jet fuel in the morning, right? Okay. Napalm. Uh, Napalm. Really, that's not exactly what he said. Napalm. I know, I know. Okay, I know. all right. But I've heard people on airport ramps saying, love the smell of jet fuel in the morning. Smells like oh, aviation. used to say it every morning, changing subway trains at National Airport in <laughs> okay. D.C. But right. I think his exact quote was, I love the smell of napalm in uh, the morning. But of course, which is not too far off from kerosene. It's, yeah, it's, well, it's gasoline, right? Anyway, okay, uh, moving on here, or, or more to the point, uh, uh, shout outs. What do we got here? What's going on here? You guys can organize your thoughts while I do the first one. Um, and uh, let's see now. Oops, where'd it go? Oop, I lost it. Here we go. We heard from a listener, a nice little uh, um, um, email or contact we got from listener Sean M. from, uh, from uh, Victoria, uh, Australia. Victoria B. And I apologize. I, I, I'm... I want to go to Australia one day. I'm fascinated by Australia, um, and uh, um, but I'm pretty sure they call them provinces. Um, maybe not, but Victoria is one of them, and he's from Shepparton in Victoria, uh, and he sent us an email telling us uh, a little bit about his flying um, in his Jabiru J200. Um, he also sent us some pictures that he took of a, uh, a beach starship, that he came across uh, in uh, a museum in Queensland, Australia, which was kind of cool. Um, a r- really interesting example, uh, a well-kept example, uh, not airworthy, but otherwise well-kept, uh, of, of the Starship. He sent us those pictures. That was kind of nice. Um, and then uh, I, when I responded to him, um, uh, among other things, I, I asked him about the whole situation with the Australian wildfires, um, which is just a huge deal down there. Um, I, I'm, you know, I mean, you can't say too much about how bad it is going down there. And uh, I asked him whether or not he, you know, I, I, I think I told him that I hoped that he was okay and that everyone in his world was okay. He wrote back, he said, uh, he said, yes, the country is certainly on fire, he said. Um, I flew to Melbourne um, today uh, and spent seven hours above 11,500 feet to stay just above the smoke covering five hours of flight. Wow. Um, he said, certainly, it's burnt over five million hectares, which I don't know, is a hectare another word for an acre? I don't know, whatever hectare is. Five million hectares now and still nowhere under control. This was a week or so ago. Um, uh, he said he listened to two of our latest episodes on the way home on that trip. So uh, um, thank you for uh, to Sean M. for uh, checking in and, and filling us in, sending the Starship pictures. And, uh, and we wish him and everybody in Australia the best um, in, in surviving these wildfires, which is just a nasty, nasty situation. Well, that Hector, for, to give you some uh, perspective on the impact, there's 2.47 acres per hectare. Two so that's a that's a lot of acreage. Two point four seven. Yeah. Two point four seven one zero five is the oh. 
Well, like who's the, counting? The one zero five makes all the difference. Yeah, really. <laughs> yeah, times. What did he say? Five million hectares. So, uh-huh. yeah, it's a big fire. I mean, yeah, or, or, or some total of all the fires. It's a big, a lot of area. It's a tragic, tragic situation. Oh, it's killed millions of wildlife. Yeah, but they're saying billions. But yeah, yeah, um, billions. yeah. It's a big, big deal. Um, uh, other shout outs. What do you guys got? David, oh, I think, I think I've, you've got one, right? I've got one. Uh, I do have one. Go ahead. Came, came in the mail this morning. Uh, the students of Endicott College, some students at Endicott College up in Massachusetts, have uh, just finished a uh, six-minute documentary on the uh, Tuskegee Airmen uh, for Black History Month. Uh, we've got a link for it. Uh, very nicely done. Uh, it focuses a great deal on uh, on on uh, retired General McGee, uh, who's now over a hundred, uh, and what they went through to uh, earn the privilege of flying combat aircraft when the white people didn't think that they had the capacity, and going on and producing. Uh, an amazing record uh, of combat operations in over 1,500 missions over North Africa, Sicily, Italy, Germany. Uh, Hats off to the students. I can't think of a more worthy subject, particularly right now. Nice. Yeah. 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 And how about you, Jeb? Anything? Yeah, uh, just uh, um, something on AOPA I saw recently. Um, They have uh, put together, um, uh, you could only really call it an extended playlist, of uh, flying related songs uh-huh and well there's a link here in the in the show notes that well there's a link here on the list we'll put in the show notes down the road um but it's it's uh it, just about any any popular song over the last pick a number of years decades uh that that has anything to do with flying or or aviating uh is on the list uh with one exception aopa and that is our our very own. Well, not, not, he doesn't belong to us, but uh, James Winbrant's "Rock mm-hmm. Your Wings," but not there, right? Is or is not it? on the list. Now, maybe that's travesty. because there's not a popular recording of it out there somewhere. But there but is. We will Rock be happy to send you an MP3 of no, this. No, 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 no. You can buy "Rock Your Wings" can on you? iTunes. Oh, there you go. See, yeah. There At you least go. you used to be able to. I'm pretty sure it's still there. Right. Um, everybody should go out and buy the recording of "Rock Your Wings" exactly. on on iTunes. Exactly. Um, or and I don't know if it's on other services, but it's on iTunes. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and, no, and, that's and AOPA needs to add this to their list absolutely do absolutely do well that's great anything else not for me fork time fork fork time fork thank you guys it's uh it's always a blast to talk with you uh david higdon dave is a aviation photographer and aviation journalist and the u.s editor for london's ab buyer magazine david what have you been working on what's going on uh all this new year stuff basically occupying most of my time and uh i'm I'm already working on stories into march uh but let's see what have i done lately because uh, that's all that matters it's you're just your what have you story. done for me lately already yeah that's that that's the line isn't it yeah. every editor i ever worked for yeah uh, 
Damn, I can't remember. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, where, where, whatever it is you're working on, where can we find it? Uh, you could find it at AEA.net uh, for my work on uh, Avionics News Magazine, uh, avbuyer.com for my business aviation writing for uh, Avbuyer Magazine, uh, or just do a shake and bake on your Google search and see what comes up. Great. Oh, and I'm real Higdon on the Twitter machine, and I don't do Facebook. So okay, that's good. Thank you for the hidden for the Twitter thing. The training is starting to take effect. I think uh, after how many Burnside. years? And Jeff Burnside is a freelance aviation writer and editor serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Uh, uh, oh, and I meant to say is, is uh, more importantly, is the uh, innkeeper for the Hidden River Home for Wayward Aviators. Um, yes, what's is. up, Jeb? What are you working on? Not a whole lot of anything right now. Uh, yeah. As soon as I pour you out of the door here on Monday, I'm going to hunker down and and start cranking out the March issue of, uh, of Aviation Safety. Mm-hmm. Um, We're heading out this afternoon to do some landscaping here. And, well, maybe. Uh, well, maybe. We'll see what, you know. And, and like offer the, you up as a meal for the alligator. Exactly. Right? It looks like I, it's, it's warm enough to get Jeb says, there. David, Jeb, is, Jeb says he's actually willing to wade into his little pond here for us to do this uh, shoreline work that we're going to try and do. And so uh, he said, uh, he said, you guys are going to keep your eyes open, right? I said, sure, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Where, where are the BMW keys again? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not only eyes open, but, but weapon handy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Jeb, where can people learn about you and all your stuff on the internet? All my stuff. Uh, well, I don't really have a website anymore, but let's just start with uh, AviationSafetyMagazine.com, uh, which uh, kind of give you the, the flavor of the magazine and whatnot. Just like Dave, I'm also on uh, uh, AEA.net, uh, associated with the Aircraft Electronics Association and their monthly magazine, Avionics News. Um and he's got the cover story this month. So. I, I was going to say, I, I mentioned to, to to Jack a couple of days ago, so you and I just all, we were just kind of flipping off, uh, flipping the coin as to who gets the cover on on uh, on avionics news these days. But you'll probably get the next one. I'm, I'm not in the running over the next couple of months, so uh, be that as it may. Um, and you know, you can find me. Uh, you can find stuff uh, I've written on uh, Avweb. You can find it on uh, GeneralAviationNews.com, um, AINOnline.com, uh, and uh, you know, maybe even uh, the uh, the wall of the, the restroom you're in. Um, Twitter <laughs> on the Twitter machine, it's Burnside J for for me personally, and Av Safety Mag uh, um, for the magazine. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a digital media producer. Um, I've posted a, a couple of videos recently uh, on my YouTube channel um, from um, a couple of the first flights I've done since I've returned to flying. And I'm pretty sure this hadn't been posted the last time we recorded. So I will say that uh, there's one video there of a flight that I did uh, um, a while back. And, uh, and then... Uh, it was a relatively short flight, and uh, then uh, I've, I'm working on a little bit longer video of a longer flight that I did, um, and, uh, and if you're a subscriber to my email newsletter, um, in a recent issue of the email newsletter, I gave an exclusive sneak, pre- sneak preview, sneak peek um, of that one, um, a short clip from that, so if you want to get a look, 
quick look there. You can check out my email newsletter. Um, hopefully by the time this is posted, though, the, the, the long version of that one will get published as well. Um, you can find me online uh, in most of the uh, usual places under the username Jack Hodgson. That's my first and last name bumped together here. For example, YouTube Jack Hodgson, Twitter Jack Hodgson, Patreon Jack Hodgson. On Amazon, you can find my ebooks by searching um, for Around the Field in the books section. And uh, the email uh, newsletter that I just alluded to, you can sign up for by going to my uh, homepage at uh, jackhodgson.com. David, was there something you wanted to tell us? Oh, to live long and prosperously into the next decade, which is only nine years and change away. Uh, go fly because, you know, this time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Bye-bye. And uh, we're at UCAP 500, T-minus 8 and counting. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. You know, the thing about what Dave says is as we get older, we have to make a choice of whether to grow up or become a pilot. <laughs> you can't do both. <laughs> that explains a lot. 